Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. It's Memorial Day weekend, Tyler, and that's always a special time on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, and this is not going to be any different. We've got an amazing show for our listeners. I want to talk, we're going to be talking to three great Americans about this holiday and about where we are as a country. Kicking off the, the show this year will be Sheldon Whitehouse, the senator from Rhode Island, an amazing coastal advocate and longtime legislator. Uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, always great to talk to, friend of the pod. Was That's on, right. Back on uh, EarthX last it's year. About a year, a year later. About a year later. So Sheldon House, uh, Whitehouse, we're going to check in with him. And then following that, another great interview, Bob Perciuseppe, the former deputy administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, Bob was, what's amazing about Bob, he was the assistant administrator for air and radiation. He was the assistant administrator for water, the two main uh, divisions in the US EPA before becoming a deputy administrator. He is now the director of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, a real innovative thinker on the American shoreline. So I'm looking forward to hearing from Bob Perciuseppe. But before all of that, we're going to spend some time with Jerry Patterson, a former state senator in the great state of Texas and the former commissioner of the Texas General Land Office, the leading coastal management agency in our state and a retired Marine Corps veteran, Vietnam-era vet. Man, what a cool lineup, Tyler, for our Memorial Day weekend coverage. That's right. We're going to kick it right off here with Jerry Patterson. Jerry, uh, I think what we what we want to do here is just take a moment and tell us a little bit about uh, what you're thinking about this Memorial Day weekend. Well, uh, you know... There's this controversy that's been lingering for, you know, in every holiday that's military related. Well, should should we celebrate and uh, or should we be uh, somber? And, and my answer to that is we, we we should do both and we can do both. Uh, I mean, we're this is a beach and a shore beach program. There's nothing wrong with going to the beach. There's nothing wrong with watermelon and beer. But sometime during that uh, episode, during that endeavor, uh, all of us should take a somber moment and remember that there are those um, in many wars who have paid the ultimate price for our liberty and our freedom. And you can do both of those. And And I've often given speeches about that subject, and I'll say, well, I'll mention some of the names of those who I serve with who didn't make it back, and I would say that, you know, Jim Bob Seegers and others, they would, they'd be fine with that. And so it's, it's, that's quite all right. But today's a day of, of commemoration and it can also be a day of pleasure. Totally, Jerry. And one of the things that I've, uh, that I really appreciate about you and your uh, quintessential Texas political brand, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Jerry is, is that you are a true believer in um, freedom and you there in your opening remarks you talked about kind of how how our liberties need to be uh, fought for and defended I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just expounding on that um, and and how on this holiday we do we go to the beach and we we enjoy our freedoms quite a bit um, and how we strike that balance just more broadly uh, as a society how do we uh, properly weigh that out 
No, properly lay out the obligation to honor those who have gone before and to en- enjoy the fruits of their sacrifice. I guess that's what you mean. Yes. Uh, and it's, it's really not that difficult. Uh, I think, though, that some people are very judgmental. Uh, and, well, you shouldn't be doing this or, you know, this is a somber day. Well, it is a somber day. It's also a day to, you know, as I mentioned earlier, for beer, watermelon and and uh, maybe a trip to the beach. Uh, but. I recall, and I've got many faces uh, of my friends in in mind who did not come home, and some that I serve with. Uh, I also have something we often uh, forget about, is that not only do we lose those in uniform during wartime, we also lose them during peacetime. And, you know, I flew fighters in the Marine Corps, and I have far more friends that I served with in the fighter community who died in peacetime military accidents than I do friends I served with in Vietnam or who were there before I was there uh, and who made that ultimate sacrifice. So military service is dangerous uh, 24-365. And there's lots of young men and now quite a few more young women who are putting themselves in harm's way for the benefit of the rest of us, including me. 73-year-old retired Marine yeah. who, you know, I, I don't get called up until after the women and children uh, at my age. He'll help us so it's, get it. It's, yeah, so it's easy for me to be bold, but, uh, yeah, it, service is continuous, and uh, and but so, so is the reaping the benefits of that service. Well, Jerry, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this. My father was a fighter pilot as well, as was my brother, James, who was an F-15E pilot, uh, kind of the successor to the aircraft that you flew, the F-4 Phantom, McDonnell Douglas F-4 Phantom, one of my favorite planes when I was a kid. That wing design is just sexy. Yeah, it was so cool, the whole thing. It's a very sexy jet. Big, loud, nothing but power. Nothing Uh, but power. But, Jerry, you got to tell us a little bit about what it was like to be in that aircraft and some a, oh, come on please, well, a, a story a take story. us into the take us into the into the seat come on well you know the you mentioned the f-15 and the f-16 and now we've got f-22 f-35 but i'll tell you that the phantom the f-4 mcdonald douglas uh two-seat supersonic interceptor fighter bomber jack of all trades was a manly jet there wasn't any <laughs> of this fly-by-wire bs no you know you had to honk on the pole and you <laughs> You, you, it's not like it is today. I mean, uh, in theory, the cockpit was uh, pressurized and air-conditioned, uh, but uh, it was a manly jet, and, <laughs> and men flew them. And there's nothing that makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up than hearing two J-79s in afterburner, which which you don't hear anymore. The final uh, drone squadron in the United States has been uh, those aircraft have been sent to the boneyard, and the Japanese uh, Air Self-Defense Force retired their Phantoms, uh, I think, two years ago, but, you know, recently. So they're all, none of them are flying. The ones I flew are on a pedestal somewhere, right? and that kind of makes you feel old. Uh, I'm not on a pedestal yet. I, I probably never will be. <laughs> but I, I, I love that. He's right. When I was at Clark Air Base, my father was at Clark Air Base in, in 66, 67, 68. Uh, it was the staging area for a lot of aircraft coming in and out of Vietnam. And to hear the sound of those F-4s yeah. coming back into Clark Air Base and, and peeling off and coming in for a landing, I mean, that there is nothing like the sound of that 
of the F4. I mean, it was amazing. And when they yeah. kind of geared it down okay. to come into land. But I, I mean, do have a question. I do have a question. I could identify it today if I heard it. I, I realize it's a manly jet, Jerry, but with a man of your track record, it's a jet that doesn't have a gun. How It did, too. It had a Gatling gun in the nose. Did it? Yeah, they I, had a 20-millimeter well, Gatling the, gun. Uh, didn't they? The no. Navy Marine Corps versions had no internal gun. The Air Force had a internal gun in the F-4E, but the Navy Marine Corps never had an internal gun. Uh, uh, they tried an external gun pod on the centerline station, but that wasn't all that successful. And, and Marines just, just fly low enough to scare the enemy to death. You know, we, <laughs> we don't need to think of gun. We had a we had a bayonet. Frankly, the Marine Corps had a bayonet at one time on the on the radon, but uh, that was phased out pretty early. <laughs> what a what a great aircraft! And and the thing was designed in the fifties and and was and just you said and and in the last two years the last couple were retired. I mean this this jet was incredible, iconic. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jerry, uh, we're at a point now. We're in the middle of the weekend here, Memorial Day weekend, and I've been watching the news and seeing. Americans pour out uh, here uh, to beach towns all around the American shoreline. And, uh, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic that we're in the middle of an economic crisis. There's a lot to balance out here. And and you're a man who has been in the big seat and understands uh, how to make big decisions. I would just like your uh, appraisal of how we're doing as a country and managing this and and maybe, you know, your thoughts as to how we can well, get through this. Well, we, we could have done better, but hindsight is always twenty twenty. I mean, there are mistakes made. There are overcommitments to certain resources that we find now we didn't need. And there have been insufficient commitments to others that we wish we had more of. Uh, and, and I think I'd give us, uh, I'd give the nation as a whole a B, uh, and, you know, it's, it's the whole thing revolves around uh, the president and governors. And if anybody thinks in, being in any of those, in either of those roles is easy, I'm sorry. If you, if you got the answer and you could fix it overnight, you're full, you know what? Right. Uh, it's it's just, uh, it's where the, it's, it's, it's why you are in this high position. Some are doing better than others. Our president on some occasions has done some, uh, I think, good things. And on other occasions, he's done things you just go, what was that about? Yeah. Uh, and but and our governors could be measured in the same manner. But but this I, we, we're reaching a point now. The polarization is what's scary right now. There's a, a, a bravado patriot movement that says, I ain't wearing no mask ever. It's an imposition on my liberty. And then there's on the other end of the spectrum, those who uh, are masked shaming, you know, and say, if you're not wearing a mask, you're trying to infect me. Right. Uh, a mask to me, I mean, I'm, I'm a libertarian. I mean, I'm the guy that passed a law in Texas to let us carry handguns. I'm a guy that repealed the motorcycle helmet mandatory requirement in Texas. Mm -hmm. But frankly, wearing a mask is not an imposition on my liberty. And I do that, uh, uh, you know, not because the government tells me to, but if that if that would make us recover better, then then I'm in favor of it. On the other hand, uh, we cannot continue in this shutdown uh, as it is. Uh, we are going to suffer when we open back up. Uh, but it, that's similar to any other balancing of 
of, of two different choices and recognize there's a, a, a negative outcome to either. And frankly, you know, in a way, I'm glad I'm not uh, in office anymore having to make those decisions. I'm glad I'm a spectator. Uh, and as an old person, I guess I'm ex- exceptionally vulnerable, but uh, we could have done certain things better, uh, no doubt about it. But this is the first big one since 1918. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair assessment. The uh, It is the first one. There's no real clear playbook to this. There's a thousand decisions that have to get made. I share your empathy for the folks in office, and I would include all the way down to the local government level and the beach town managers that we've interviewed who are trying yeah. to figure out how the hell to keep the town open, protect their citizens locally, but keep the economy moving. Uh, there aren't any easy answers. And the folks who sit back and say, hell, I'll tell you what I did. You know, it's there isn't. This is a tough call. It's a challenge for elected leaders all around the country. Um, let's talk a little bit about the context of beaches. Uh, Senator, when you were when you were at the land office and were a big advocate for open beaches and defended those rights of the public uh, with great fierceness and admiration from a lot of people around the state of Texas. Uh, what, how are we doing on the, our, how are we doing on our beaches and our beach management during here, COVID? Here in Texas, I, I think, I think my successor is doing reasonably well on beach management, but I think uh, my successor may be a little bit too concerned with the politics uh which will get you in trouble every single time. Um, well, you know, the beaches can be reopened, and I think Galveston is open, but the problem is we have a bunch of meatheads that are going to go down there and, you know, into the beach and, and uh, congregate closely, and, and uh, it, it, the beaches should be open now to rational people. But the problem is, I guess maybe it's just Texas. We may have a, a, a scarcity of rational people when it comes to whiskey, women, and, and sand. Uh, <laughs> we got we got we got some smart folks in this state, but there are. It doesn't take a lot of people to be off track to make the the weekend uh, impossible to manage for local sheriffs and city officials. And yeah, and people. you know, and, and candidly, beachgoers are primarily young folk, and young folk are in their own minds bulletproof. Yeah, they cannot suffer any ill. They think, and that's not true, and we know it. Jer- um, so that's just a. <laughs> I guess it's no different than some of the splash days uh, uh, debacles that used to happen down in Galveston, but it wasn't because of a pandemic. You just got to where it was, you know, too damn dangerous. People right. get people get a little rowdy when they get next to the water. Yeah, I mean these yeah. are these are party yeah. towns where you have economies that are heavily built if not entirely built on tourism and jerry i think the question is you know uh and and this came up on a recent call with the uh american shore and beach preservation association with a bunch of uh coastal municipalities um but there was this notion like hey when you open up you know a city that maybe 10 or 15 percent of the economy is tourism oriented you can kind of do that because the residents are there and they're self-interested in the health of the community that's there. But when you were talking about a beach community, A, where you're, it's a tourism-oriented place, and then B, you, you stack on top of that the fact that all this stuff you guys are saying, it's like it tends to skew a little younger, it appears. Uh, you know, there's a lot of drinking. There's a lot of... The not, numbers are big. People are not wearing masks. I've, I've been paying attention to CNN and I've been looking at the footage. 
And I'm not seeing a lot of masks on the beach, ladies and gentlemen. Jeep weekend this past week on Bolivar Peninsula was rocking and rolling door to door. That was oh, yeah, very yeah. the topless weekend. <laughs> That's right. Jerry, you mentioned yeah, the, the, polar, the polarization in the country uh, is a concern, I think, for all Americans, regardless of where we are on the political spectrum. It's uh, we, We're a raucous crowd, Americans. We, we comment. We talk a lot about politics. But there's always been, in my, in my lifetime anyway, I think a pretty solid core that we're all Americans first. Um, what, what's, what, how do we get that back? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, because we do need to move back in that direction. I think, it's, I, I think that polarization is somewhat similar to a pandemic. They come and go. Uh, they burn out, uh, hopefully. I mean, things are, at, frankly, at their worst that I've seen them since I've been in politics and I first ran for office in 1984. Uh, what was that, uh, 36 years ago? Uh, I've never seen the polarization uh, <clears throat> like it is today. And it's hatred polarization. You you, you, you know, you feel you're 100% right and the other party is 100% wrong. I don't think I've ever seen this. Uh, and it's no longer... It's not only just between uh, the left and the right, the Democrats, Republicans, whatever you want to call it. It's within the parties, particularly right. in the Republican Party. I don't think so much in the Democrat Party right now. I mean, uh, I, I recall, you know, I, I was elected as a Republican in, all, in my offices, and I recall a day when we used to run against uh, Democrats. <laughs> right. We don't have that luxury anymore. <laughs> We're in an intramural firefight, fratricide, uh, to some extent. And uh, I don't know that I've ever seen the country like this. I mean, I know it's happened before. I mean, clearly in 1860, yeah. we were fairly, uh, you know, bifurcated and 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 polarized. But I don't know that I've seen it like this in in my lifetime uh, at all. Uh, it's just amazing, and it's it spills over to beaches a little bit. I mean. And, and an analogy on this beach dilemma for those in elective office, we should all go back and watch Jaws and imagine you're the mayor, you know, right. as to whether to open up the beaches. And we don't have Jaws out there now. We have something that's more deadly, potentially more deadly than the great white shark. Uh, uh, Bruce. I, I, don't know how we, I don't know how we fix it. Uh, I think it's going to have to run its course. I think people are going to realize at some point that just how misled or gullible they may have been to believe some of the crap that's out there on Facebook uh, and other mm. social medias. And, and that's become the primary source of information for too many people. Unreliable. Uh, unreliable. And, yeah, unreliable. I mean, in frankly, a lot of that stuff, I tell people nothing is as good or as bad as first reported. So mm. if you see something on social media that is just unbelievably right or wrong, it's probably bogus. It's nothing is that simple. That is a good watchword for Memorial Day weekend and moving forward. Uh, I completely agree with you. I think anybody who tells you that they're, they've got all the answers is immediately someone I'm like, hey, hang on a second. I, w nobody has all the right cards. None of us, whatever political perspective we have as part of the American dialogue, uh, it takes all of us to work together in this country. And, Indeed and it does. Memorial Day is a great reminder of the shared sacrifice and the shared commitment to the values of this country. And, and Jerry, you've been in public yeah. service your whole life, damn it, from the time you got out of college up through the offices that you've held, been a great part of that process, and we want to thank you for your work. 
Well, it's, uh, you know, it's been, it's been good for me. And it's a generational thing in, in our family. My son, Travis, is uh, soon to retire from the Marine Corps. He's lieutenant colonel. He's the fifth consecutive generation of wartime military service. And uh, he, by the way, he's got three combat tours, and his current assignment is flying Marine One for the president. So I just had to put wow. that in there, you know. You uh, have to put that in. Your son is flying Marine One for the president of the United States. That is the that is a high you, honor. Yeah, it's scary if you knew him when he was in high school. Real scary. <laughs> <laughs> we all get a little smarter over time. Uh, ladies and yeah. gentlemen, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Patterson, former state senator in the great state of Texas, land commissioner, a Vietnam vet, uh, and and great American, and a true advocate uh, for the Constitution and the rights and freedoms of the country. Jerry, thank you for kicking off our Memorial Day coverage on the American Shoreline Podcast. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering, with twenty eight offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the thedunesciencegroup.com. Senator Whitehouse, thank you for being on the program today. I want to just pick it up right back where we left off in April of 2019. And you were talking about how you are a romantic, an American exceptionalist, and with really an exceptional Memorial Day right before us. I just wanted to ask you what's on your mind as we head into this Memorial Day and uh, and get your thoughts on this moment, clearly a, a moment of reflection for uh, the American people. Yeah, it's, um, it's in many respects a moment of collapsed American leadership uh, around the world. Um, whether you see it at the World Health Organization or in the Climate Change Agreement from Paris or simply in the kind of fact-based um, Atlantic coalition that has provided so much wealth and so much security since World War II, um, in all of those ways, we seem to be falling out of um, leadership and indeed even in some cases absolutely hostile to um, the progress that many, many Americans uh, gave a lot 
to build and to sustain, including those who gave their lives to build and to sustain it. You know, uh, Senator, it's a presidential election year, uh, seemingly a time when political tribalism is laid bare in the country. Um, We are in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, As a U.S. senator, how do we effectively govern and legislate? Uh, How do we rise to the occasion as we have throughout American history? Uh, That's a very, very big question, and I'm not sure I have a... Um, simple answer to it. I do think that um, some of the principles that America has represented around the world for many decades are good touch points. Um, And I think that um, we need to step back from using partisanship as a device for personal advantage. I guess I'd say it that way. There are things that we are going to be partisan about. Um, That's why you have two different political parties. They represent different constituencies and they represent different views. But there's a sort of trafficking in partisanship now that I think has made it more toxic. And it's amplified by um, news media and blogs and other outlets that go out of their way to stir up tribal resentments and partisanship largely to generate clicks to generate revenue to make people money and again back to memorial day when you think of the sacrifice that so many americans have made to get us to this point the idea that people are willing to do that kind of damage to their own country uh just to make money and sort of make a sport of partisanship i think is an unfortunate turn of events on this program, Senator, we like to look to history uh, to, to learn stuff and gain perspective on the present. Uh, we just recently did a show on medieval Mediterranean uh, trade, which was pretty interesting. Uh, but we've also looked back on American history, and we look, we've been looking back at the 90s bulls <laughs> of late. But um, Memorial Day goes back to uh, a tradition of that followed the Civil War, uh, perhaps the greatest I think unquestionably the greatest rupture in American history. And right now on the coastlines around America, we are seeing a a protest of sort, this this balance of of libertarian kind of freedom seeking with us trying to figure out how to manage the greater good. And uh, it seems like this is a, a, a a dynamic that our democracy has struggled with for a long time. And I know our democracy has reformed and evolved and changed and I believe gotten quite a bit better over the years, but I'm just curious to know what, what you're seeing, what your perspective is on that. Are we, is our democracy able to manage those, that division that you just referenced? Um, I'm optimistic. I think it is. I think we've been through dark valleys before, um, whether it was the Civil War or um, other um, divisive McCarthyite-type moments in our history, Um, and we seem to come out of it. Um, And there are also issues that don't get as poisoned by the partisan toxicity, and I think Oceans is one of those. It's been... Um, an interesting bipartisan thing to watch. Uh, For instance, 
when a Democratic president, Barack Obama, decided that it would be a good idea to start the process to permit um, oil and gas drilling off of the coasts of southern states from Virginia down to Florida. Um, those coastal communities, the counties and the cities, rose up on the side of the oceans to object. And a little advocacy group called Oceana helped organize what they called the Resolution Revolution, which ran all the way down that very red coast and created a firestorm of opposition to the offshore drilling. So there the roles were sort of reversed. It was the red state residents who were up in arms against a blue president for having begun the process of messing with their oceans. And um, I think where, wherever you look at oceans, you tend to see more um, harmony and more, um, I guess people are a little bit romantic about the oceans, too. Well, Senator, you lead the Senate Oceans Caucus with uh, Senator Murkowski from Alaska, a Republican senator. Uh, you're known for your bipartisanship on coastal issues. Uh, what's important on your coastal agenda these days? Can you give us an overview of what you're working on? Yes, the um, three, I would say, top pieces are um, to get the ocean plastics bill, the bigger, better ocean plastics bill that the Senate has passed, cleared through the House, which I hope very much we'll be able to do this year in this Congress. Um, we also have a very significant ocean data bill, Senator Murkowski and I, that was up for a committee hearing when COVID stopped committee hearings. And we're trying to uh, work out how we can get that bill passed through the Senate, we hope, in time so that the House also can act on it and both bills become law in this Congress. And the third is that some years ago, after much struggle and travail, I got a um, Oceans and Coastal Fund, Oceans and Coastal Security Fund, it's called, um, established as a matter of law. It's authorized, um, and we continue to battle to get funding into it so that there's appropriated funding. And its purpose is so that local communities who are facing new coastal issues and may not have a lot of resources at their disposal are able to do the kind of ocean planning and um, the kind of um, research and science that will let them know what it is that they've got to prepare for, whether it's their fisheries getting clobbered by um, warming oceans or whether it's seaside valuable property at risk from sea level rise and storm surge or whether it's shell fisheries at harm from uh, acidification there are lots of small towns and counties along the coast that simply don't have the experience and expertise to do that kind of work in-house. And so these grants can be very helpful to them to plan ahead. Adaptation is going to be a key issue for, as you say, coastal communities around the American shoreline, Senator. I have to ask you, let's talk about energy just a little bit. In our last conversation, April at EarthX, you, we had a brief discussion about the IRS Code 45Q provisions yep. that were passed, uh, the carbon sequestration tax credit. I'd love to hear an update on that. How, what's the status? 
And I also want to ask you about wind power, one of the emerging industries on the coast of America in the northeast part of the United States. Well, Treasury at long last moved forward with its first round of 45Q regulations. And the battle now is on a second round of clarifying regulations and on trying to make sure that the 45Q EPA regulations are honored in terms of uh, proper storage, sequestration of the excess carbon. So uh, it's gone, unfortunately, too slowly. And um, Treasury took way too long getting through its first regulations. But although slow, progress is real. And what we've seen is markets respond. So the companies that are engaged in carbon uh, removal um, see a better um, financial plan for themselves because the financers who will get behind these projects now look at 45Q and they see a um, revenue path that allows them to lean forward into the projects more and commit more to them. Mm. So the market response has been good, even if the regulatory response has been um, slow and a bit uncertain. Well, it's the first step, as you said in our interview last April, in terms of using the power of the American market to address climate change by putting a price on carbon in the form of tax credits. For the listeners out there, I would encourage everybody to Google up the IRS code 45Q provisions and learn about carbon sequestration tax credits, uh, a really important policy initiative, Senator, that you led with others in a bipartisan manner. Great, Bell. Up in the Northeast. And your other question was about offshore wind. Yes, sir. That is still a problem. Um, As a Rhode Island senator, I'm very proud that we got the first steel in the water and the first electrons on the grid with offshore wind. Um, The projects that are stacked up for construction are enormous. It's a huge investment and a major, major, major source of clean power. And they are jammed up in the regulatory approval process uh, within the Department of Interior at uh, BOEM, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. And um, that's been unfortunate. Um, It's a little bit um, on the industry. The first one out of the box was a company called Vineyard Wind, which made a very poor presentation of itself because they had... um, entered into a private agreement with their private financers um, that pinned them down to um, a plan for their uh, project before anybody else got a look at it, like fishermen and shippers and people have to go through the waters. So they painted themselves into a corner and then I thought they, I think, my theory is they kind of hoped that they would put the gun to their own heads like the scene in Blazing Saddles and say, This whole project's going to fail unless you clear out of our way and let us build it. (laughs) And, of course, that didn't work very well. The fishermen were not amused. And it it was a testament to how important it is when you're doing something like this in a public space. The oceans are a public space that you be open with the rest of the public that uses that space about what you're up to and adapt yourself to their needs. You don't get to go into a private room with your private financers and cut a private deal that moves everybody else out of the way. Right. And I think that's the painful lesson that they learned. I hope the rest of the industry is learning it, and we can put that episode 
uh, behind us. And that just leaves us with the bone process. And I honestly don't know whether that is just um, kind of innocent bureaucratic delay or whether the fossil fuel industry is pulling strings to slow things down so that they get a couple more winters of, you know, gas into the northeast where it's not replaced with clean uh, offshore wind. And it's too early to tell whether there's mischief in the Department of Interior's delay, but there's certainly cause for um, suspicion. Right. And, you know, it's such an important emerging industry in the Northeast. As you said, the stack of projects that are uh, being considered right now is enormous. Uh, The leasing of offshore federal submerged lands for uh, these projects is incredibly large and important, uh, worth hundreds of millions of dollars in lease fees alone. Um, The major oil and gas companies are part of the picture here with Shell Oil being a bidder on some of those offshore leases. I hope that when we look around the world and we see the offshore wind energy industry booming off of the European coast, uh, massive industry, lots of jobs, clean power, uh, how do we reclaim or claim maybe for the first time a part of our leadership role in American energy uh, through this wind power thing? I'm hoping we can get through it. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping we can too. And um there's some i think effective bipartisanship happening on this as well um our friends uh, senators cassidy and kennedy from louisiana have been helpful in letters in uh, phone calls with uh, the interior secretary um in briefings in a whole variety of ways trying to move and nudge these projects forward because even though they're off the coast of Rhode Island and Massachusetts and Connecticut and New York, a lot of the fabrication gets done in Louisiana. Yeah. Because that's where the skill set is, that's where the um, facilities are. Uh, they've developed some real capability about building offshore facilities, unfortunately, for oil and gas, but it's basically the same construction. A capability that builds huge wind turbine stations and so we have allies um, in the Louisiana delegation and that's been I think um, productive. It, it, thank you for mentioning the Louisiana connection into the American wind power industry that's emerging here and it, it I wanted to ask uh, a question related to the Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act Uh, Many of our listeners will be familiar with that. This is a revenue sharing program where the states in the Gulf of Mexico benefit directly from the royalties paid by the oil and gas industry uh, in offshore federal waters. Is it possible that a Gomesa style revenue sharing system could be built for the Northeast states? Because I can tell you, that's a very popular program down here when those checks arrive in the coastal counties and in the state of Texas. Yeah, we are um, actively working on that. This is an issue where geography trumps partisanship um, by a lot. Um, And so it's a question of organizing coastal communities. There are two glitches in the uh, revenue uh, situation. Uh, One is that a good deal of the offshore revenue goes to upland and inland uses. A lot of the money flows to the Wild West and uh, not to coastal communities that particularly 
in this climate change era really, really need um, the, the resources. And the second is that once you get out of the Gulf, um, you don't have the uh, agreement in place <clears throat> for revenue. So there's really not a significant role for the northeastern states in those revenues until we establish one. So there's a kind of a northeastern play to share revenues with states for all this offshore wind development. And then there's an inland versus coastal play to try to make sure that coastal communities are getting less um, of a aren't so much getting rolled by the way the funding flows. Uh, Senator, I've, I've got a, a bit of a policy question, international policy question, and I've also got a just a total kind of Rhode Island lifestyle question. Uh, and I'm going to start with the policy question that we can to pull over to uh, how Memorial Days are done in Rhode Island. But I'm, one of the things we followed very closely is the kind of migrating lobster population up north and issues with uh, the Canadians, both in terms of protecting right whales, North Atlantic right whales, and also with uh, uh, them being able to export these lobsters to China and just, just the fishery moving. And this is not unique strictly to the lobster industry. We're seeing it across the board. Uh, you actually mentioned it in our last interview. Um, I'm curious to know, you, you, you have a, an eye for international uh, policy and how the United States represents itself. Are are we making inroads to rethink how we are managing our fisheries beyond our borders? Um, we are, I would say, beginning to, but again, it's very um, parochial, and um, we haven't really made huge progress. Um, Rhode Island is more or less lost our lobster fishery uh people used to fight when lobster pots were dropped too close to somebody else's lobster <laughs> pots and now you don't see those uh concerns any longer because there really isn't much left to fight over the lobsters have followed the colder water up to maine um, the gulf of maine is exploding with lobster but even in maine if you see where the landings are reported, they're climbing northward, northward, northward steadily. And uh, pretty soon, I think the weight of the lobster fishery will be up in the Canadian Maritimes. And Maine will have just been a byway as the fishery moves north. And um, so we see a lot of that. And we see just a lot of uncertainty. Um, one of my friends who's a... a trawler um has told me sheldon it's just getting weird out there this is not my grandfather's ocean any longer i don't know where the fish are going to be and when they're going to be there and i'm pulling stuff up in my nets that he never saw in his life right. um and so all of that makes life uncertain for the uh, fishing community and it's worse when the bureaucracy doesn't respond many of our um fisheries up here in Rhode Island are now controlled by the Atlantic, the Mid-Atlantic Marine Fisheries Council, because back in the day, the species were located down there. Right. But now they're moving up here, like black sea bass, 
And our fishery is way stronger than the old numbers would say because it's a northward moving fishery. On this one, we're not being left. We're being uh, arrived at. You're intercepting it. Yeah. So black sea bass is a really strong fishery for us, but the numbers uh, haven't moved because the mid-Atlantic folks don't particularly care about Rhode Island very much. And what the hell, they can sail all the way up here and take our fish under their permits. Um, so there's a big shakeout that needs to take place to regularize this. And I guess the last thing I'll say is a lot of the science around um, protecting these species and keeping them healthy for fishermen for generations has always been based on the principle that the fishery was more or less going to stay the same that it was a static baseline and you could plan off of that. Mm. Now with things moving around so much, you've got to way accelerate the timing or the lag that's based, baked in for regulatory certainty actually creates um, a known wrong answer because it took so long to get to what five or 10 years ago was the right answer. Ooh. You know, I think that, 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 observation that the underlying assumptions in so much of our regulatory posture when it comes to the shoreline and nearshore waters is based on this idea that it's static, we understand it, and we're managing it, when in fact climate change is forcing substantial shifts in this nearshore water and coastal America, uh, whether it's sea level rise, the threat to upland property, or how fisheries are evolving and moving. I mean, Senator, I think this has got to be one of the major policy issues at the federal level. Uh, we have a lot to be proud of in our fisheries management in the last 25 years with the Fisheries Management Council system. But like you're saying, those folks are dealing with species that have not historically been in their commercial stack. They don't have the regulation and, and uh, uh, science available and this reform that's going to have to occur, I don't, it's such a complex policy issue. How do we approach something that complicated? I think at some point, you know, the some of the basic principles begin to settle in. We've tried a couple of times to redo the Magnuson Act. And I think um, the, the time will come when that gets reauthorized and there's a fairly significant reboot of it. Because right now, our regulatory system is your father's Oldsmobile, right. and we need to update for the current circumstances and for the current technologies. Uh, Senator, the Memorial Day holiday, uh, such an important holiday, as we discussed at the outset, formerly called Decoration Day originally. You know, something I learned in preparing for the show is it didn't become an official federal holiday until 1971. And uh, it, is a, it is a holiday that brings Americans together, where we all uh, take a moment to think about the shared sacrifices that built this great country that we all have the privilege of living in. It's also the tradition of kicking off the summer season, particularly the beach season. As you're looking at the Rhode Island shoreline and the Northeast shoreline, uh, you know, we're a little earlier down here in Texas. The beach season has been going on for about three months. But can you tell us a little bit about the history of Memorial Day and the beach season up in Rhode Island? Yeah, it's kind of, uh, well, first of all, we have a huge summer economy. 
partly it's tourism, uh, partly it's regular summer visitors who own houses here, partly it's Rhode Islanders who have a home someplace that like to spend their summers uh, by the shore. And so Memorial Day kind of signals the move to summers. And even when things have been very tough in Rhode Island before, you can feel the morale of the state climb through the summers as people go into their summer traditions. So it's an important start. And uh, with COVID right now, we are just beginning some of our reopening. Our governor, I think, has been very responsible about organizing the reopening to happen in a, in a planned way. And it coincides with Memorial Day for some of the early steps. So I think there's a feeling in addition to the joy of the beginning of the uh, Rhode Island summer season, that it's also the beginning of some degree of return to whatever the new normal will be. So it's been good uh, in that sense. Uh, we're also, uh, you know, state that's been around since the creation and has had many, many generations of men and women serve in our armed forces. And we have the Naval War College here and a lot of military um, presence and affinity. So it's also a um, somber weekend for those who are remembering loved ones lost and honoring, you know, grandparents and great uncles and people like that who gave their lives to leave this country to us. It, it's such an important holiday. It's going to be more complex for our coastal communities around the American shoreline as they uh, face the, I don't want to say, onslaught of visitorship that happens uh, during the summer months in, in small uh, coastal communities. Uh, there are a lot of complex issues now with COVID, and, uh, but we're going to keep it on a positive note. Uh, Senator, I wanted to ask you. Uh, and I think I'll just jump in on that because I think we should keep it on a positive note. If there's one good thing that comes out of COVID, um, it is that it has disrupted our expectations as to what is possible. We were, I think, um, fairly, um, there's a word I'm looking for and not getting. Um, Paralyzed? Kind of, <laughs> you no, know, we, we just had a kind of a fool's confidence that uh -huh. things would always be the same and that life was the way it was and that no big changes were going to happen. Um, and I think with what COVID has done and with the way we've had to respond as a country in order to keep people from uh, dying in much bigger numbers than we've seen, we are now living through something that nobody would have expected, nobody would have thought possible, nobody would have guessed. Right. And that opens the window of the possible, both in terms of what can really happen. So when the climate denial people say, oh, Nothing, what could possibly go wrong with climate change? Suddenly people realize, oh, my God, we're in a world in which things can go wrong bigly. And the other is that, you know, big government responses can be absolutely necessary to stabilize and, and balance, save the country. And we have a huge multi-trillion dollar government response. And so that opens the window a little bit for what um, we're capable of doing in response. And I think those that kind of opening of the of the horizons of the window of the aperture mm -hmm. right um is is potentially the most valuable thing that will come out of this very exciting possibilities we have a rare opportunity perhaps as you say shaken loose a little bit from 
our assumptions in the past, the constraints perhaps that we imposed on ourselves. Complacency was the word I was looking there for. Ah, that's a good yeah. one. Yeah, absolutely. And Senator, I know we're getting to the end of the time allowable here, but I wanted to just mention one thing. Uh, we're looking forward to having on the show a person you may well know, uh, Grover Fugate, who is the head of the Rhode Island Coastal Resource Management Council and has headed that agency in Rhode Island for 28 years, I think, almost 30 and uh, Rhode Island is a leading state on coastal policy management. Uh, the more we learn about the Rhode Island program, the more impressed we are with it. Uh, are you familiar with Grover? And can you talk a little bit about the state's leadership in coastal management in America? Yeah, I've, Rhode Island is a small state. I've known Grover for decades. And we actually have the Grover and Sheldon show where we go around the state and give our uh, twinned presentations on what sea level rise means for coastal communities and how it gets amplified by storms and all of that. So um, Grover and I are as thick as thieves and I'm a huge, huge fan of his. It's his leadership of the CRMC that made it one of the most active and science-based <clears throat> coastal agencies in the country. And it was um, him and a wonderful uh, woman from the University of Rhode Island who led the open process that got our offshore wind uh, facility sited. We did it instead of starting a project and then letting people take pot shots at it and have it, you know, ultimately languish and die on the regulatory cross of interminable delay. Right. We got everybody in the room first. We did a very strong science-based uh, group process Everybody got to lay claim to what they thought was necessary to them in the waters, and the science dictated where the facilities would be located, and we broke the logjam. There had been no successful sightings of wind turbines anywhere in the United States, and Grover's understanding of the science and Grover's understanding of the regulatory process and how you could make it work. In a small state, it's really hard to roll people. Right. <laughs> you'll never... see them. You'll see them at church. You'll see them at the soccer game. You'll see them at the market. Right. So we have a bit of a experience in, you know, working together and trying to get everybody in the room and see what good can come of it. And what good came of it was deep water wind. And Grover, as you may know, is retiring and yes. it'll be a terrific loss for our coastal resources management council. And I hope the next administration finds something very useful for him to do because he is a uniquely qualified and talented person who has really distinguished himself in his career in public service. Well, as a former coastal management program person in the state of Texas, I can tell you anybody who can survive in that job for 28 years is damn smart and knows a thing or two about <laughs> politics. Uh, yeah. We also you had take a bullet every once yeah, in a while. It's a, it's a tough business. And we, we did have on Jen McCann, who may be who you were referring to. Jen's from, who I was talking about. And she and this is where we really got excited about the Rhode Island. Program. It is a small state. Isn't it, it is a small state. We. We were so excited to learn how the state approached that offshore wind discussion. It was absolutely, uh, I, I think, a model for other states in terms of close coastal planning and stakeholder engagement. Uh, absolutely undid the mistakes made by uh, the companies who took the first bite at the apple up there. This is the better way. Uh, so, so yeah. much to know and learn from uh, Rhode Island, a great coastal state. Uh, Senator, we're respectful of your time. We wanted to give you the last word. Closing thoughts. 
my closing thought would be that um, you know, looming behind this COVID pandemic comes climate change with very dire warnings about what it means for our economy, what it means for our health, what it means for our food supply, what it means particularly for our oceans. And against the often malicious effort of special interests to deprecate the science and mock the concern, um, oceans are a place where people can really come together around this. You can't deny the ocean science. Sea level rise you measure with a yardstick. Temperature increase you measure with thermometers. Ocean acidification you measure with a kind of pH test that a middle school science lab would have for its aquarium. It's not weird, technical, complicated. It's right in your face. Right. And so the facts couldn't be clearer. And fishermen and others who live the ocean see it. It's indisputable to them. So there's a force of witness about it that is very, very strong. And finally, I'll close where we began. I think there deeply is, for reasons I cannot explain, something in mankind that is romantic about the oceans. They are special people who have um, devoted their lives to the sea, feel it in a very strong way. Um, people come from landlocked states and see the ocean and say, I'm never going back to a landlocked state, state again. I've got to be near the ocean. And that combination of science and witness and affection and romance, I think, gives um, oceans a great platform, uh, a great place to become a fulcrum for the decisions that we need to make and the safety precautions we need to take to protect ourselves against climate change. And if the oceans help deliver us again, that would be a wonderful thing. Wow. Uh, 100% right. I, I, I think uh, if you want to understand climate change, look in the water, don't look in the air. It's what will bring us together. It, I hope you're right that that is the fulcrum upon which we can bring the country together on one of the huge challenges facing not just us, but countries around the world. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from the great state of Rhode Island. Uh, Senator, thank you, as always, for, for taking thank a few moments so to Thank you both so much, and on the uh, show. hope to see you at another EarthX, a non-virtual one. I hope so. I, <laughs> look, we're, we're sorry we didn't get to go back to that. We hope to do it again. <laughs> Take care. Thank you so much. Welcome to the podcast, Bob Purchaseppi. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's great to be here with you guys. Well, Bob, I know you've had an incredible career, and uh, some of that is uh, in the pre-interview, but... Currently, uh, for the listeners out there, Bob is the president of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, has been in that position since 2014, one of the leading climate and, uh, climate and energy think tanks in America. And Bob had a long history with the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, what I love about your career, Bob, is that you were a, a, an environmental planner and professional at the city level in Baltimore, moved up to the state level in Maryland and on to the EPA. You've been at every position in government when it comes to environmental protection. So you're a great guest for us on the American Shoreline podcast. Oh, it's, uh, it, 
That's what happens when you live for a long time. You get to do all those things. Bob, uh, really interested to know how you initiated your career uh, in the in, in working with the environment. Uh, you're from New York City, and and uh, when I typically when I imagine you know the central casting uh, person who spends a career working on the environment, I don't imagine someone from New York City. How did you come to be an environmentalist? Wait, that's a that's a long story. I'll try to give you the abridged version. Um, but uh, you know, I sort of grew up a little bit north of New York City in in Westchester County, and uh, you know, just a touch outside the Bronx. And so the um, I used to uh, go out in the out hiking and 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 hunting uh, with my father when I was young, and uh, we used to go fishing. Um, I got into trout fishing, uh, going further up uh, into the, the more um, country part of New York State. Uh, most people don't realize most of New York is a pretty wide open space. <laughs> the right. Adirondacks, the Adirondack Mountains, being some of the largest wilderness east of the Mississippi River. So, um, so I had that uh, that childhood that that really was a, spent. There was quite a bit of outdoor time spent and and i think that that just carried through in my life although um i was always sort of technically oriented when i was in high school more more interested in the science than in the, than in the arts but uh you know so usually back in the 60s when you went to the guidance council you said, oh you're going to be an engineer right and so, <laughs> so i started off doing engineering but i i wasn't enamored I, mean, I love engineers, but I wasn't enamored with it, and I really got more into the natural sciences, and so I ended up getting a degree in natural resources uh, rather than engineering. So that sort of prompted me along. Got you in the right direction at Cornell, and I think your master's was, uh, where was that from, Bob? Uh, the, the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. That's right, Syracuse University. And, and the reason I went there is because the New York State College of Environmental Science and Forestry is co-located on that campus. Oh. And so I was able to take courses back and forth uh, between between the two. Wow. Cornell School of Forestry, very, very well known and regarded. Uh, you were so a New Yorker. Uh, you end up in Baltimore working at the uh, Department of Planning, uh, a Department of Planning for the city of Baltimore uh, you made the transition from New York down to Baltimore, and I understand your sports affiliation went with it. In reading about you beforehand, I understand you're an Oilers fan now, and I just thought this guy's dad's got to be had, must have had a problem with that. Yeah, did that did that produce <laughs> a, that uh, did that produce any sort of conflict uh, with your with your family? You know, the Yankees. I don't know. Is your father a Yankees fan? Your hunting partner here, yeah, might have been a New uh, York fan. He totally was a Yankees fan, and more importantly, my grandfather on my mother's side was an avid who played uh, baseball uh, in the minor leagues in the early part of the last century, which were quite different than they are now. And I remember when we had a TV when I was a little kid, I would go and watch the Yankees. My mother says I used to call them the Hankies, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, with him and and he would be drinking beer and he would give me little thimbles of beer when I was like seven years old or something like that so um yeah I, I definitely grew up watching Mickey Mantle and wow you know, yeah you know, I was I was in Yankee Stadium the last uh, game of the season in 
63, I think, when Roger Maris hit his 61st home run. Oh, my God. That's a good so, one. So, yeah, it took a little bit to convert me. Um, <laughs> but I'm a baseball fan. And uh, I, when I moved to Baltimore to work for the city uh, on Chesapeake Bay and water quality issues, right. um, I didn't live too far from the Orioles stadium and I just started going to baseball games. This is what I do. And in addition to playing. And so, um, yeah, I became a, an Orioles fan. And they had a few good players back then. Just a few. Brooks, Brooks Robinson. Brooks Robinson at third. Unbelievable. <laughs> Great yeah. pitching. I mean, yeah, and who Jim was Palmer. Jim Palmer and the, uh, who was the manager of that team, those teams? That was a whitey Earl, Earl Weaver. Earl Weaver. He was a character. Oh, yeah, yeah, a great franchise. And and in the time in Baltimore, you're working for the city. Eventually, you come, um, you move up to becoming uh, uh, the, the the leader of the Department of Environmental Protection in Maryland. It sounded mm-hmm. like you moved up with the the mayor of Baltimore when he became the governor of Baltimore. But it really focused on the Chesapeake. And I wanted to ask about that time period when we were first starting to get a feel for what the condition of the Chesapeake Bay was back in the early '80s and trying to get a handle on this very large, complex system and what the hell whole to do bunch about of states, bunch of states, dynamic bay system, which we are uh, we've done a couple pods now we have uh, about the Chesapeake Bay. But yeah, Bob, tell us about your introduction to the Chesapeake Bay and and tell us your thoughts about the Chesapeake Bay. Well, you know, it, it's, it's actually doing reasonably well, given the population and the and the amount of activity that goes on in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. But when I started to folk, when I went to the work for the city of Baltimore, it was really to help them start to implement some of the requirements under the Clean Water Act that was enacted in 1972. And part of that was reducing some of the pollution that came from the sewage treatment plants and, and all these other things that are stormwater runoff, all associated with the Chesapeake Bay. And and as I got further on in my career there, and as I started looking at these issues more broadly, around the early 80s, um, it became clear that the Chesapeake Bay was affected not just by um, uh, general development, but it was also affected by pollution, nutrient, what they call nutrient pollution, right. phosphorus and nitrogen, all of which are essential for life in the bay. But when you have too much of it, then it there's too much... Uh, of the uh, algae grows and then when it dies it decomposes and it uses up the oxygen in the water and so uh, what was learned in that early part of the 80s you know based on research that had been going on in the 70s and the 60s was that nitrogen was as important as phosphorus Mm. for controlling that and that changed the whole dynamic of the kind of pollution control you would do for the Chesapeake Bay and it really required a uh, where phosphorus sort of stays a little bit in the, with the soil particles, nitrogen is very soluble in water. And so nitrogen from all the way up near Cooperstown, let's stay with the baseball for Absolutely, a minute. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Cooperstown, New York, that watershed comes all the way down to uh, the Chesapeake Bay. And, yep. and so um, that was what uh, really prompted a, a bigger look at the, the pollution control and required all the states to have to work together. Well, so, here, here you were from the beginning. This is what I think, Bob, sort of sets a tone. If I'm looking at it from the outside at your career, I, I, here's a guy who was enmeshed in the multi-jurisdictional environmental problems from the very first day. 
when you start looking at the Chesapeake Bay, you're talking about a watershed of tens of thousands of square miles. Multiple states are involved. And the nitrogen issue draws in the agricultural community, not a typically friendly group to environmental regulation. And you're trying to get figure out how to how to put this bay on a good track to health. Um, I understand that when you became the head of the, the department in Maryland, the previous head had had really not done the job on on the Chesapeake. And and here's what the, what I'd like to ask you now at this point in your career, having worked all the way from the city level up to being the administrator, acting administrator of EPA. When you look back at those early steps in trying to figure out how to tackle estuary health of a, in a huge watershed like this, how close to doing it the way you would now were you? In other words, in retrospect, is it, do you feel like you guys were on the right track? Did you miss some things early in how we approach these technical issues, difficult political issues? Well, you know, one of the things that I, I think I learned in, in that time doing the work on the Chesapeake Bay is that you you can't do it by brute force. And people want to do things by brute force, but you really you really needed to get everybody's heart and mind into it, and that requires a a, a much I I don't need I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but it requires a little bit of a softer touch. And um, as urgent as it was, and as urgent as something like climate change is now, you have to really think about how do you bring people together? Because if you go one way and everybody doesn't agree with it, or, or everybody doesn't always agree with everything. So uh, there's always, but if you can't get the majority of, of the actors involved to, you know, to feel comfortable or at least recognize why they have to do something, um, it's going to, it creates a back force that's very hard to overcome, no matter what laws you pass, no matter how you go about regulating things. So I, I learned the, the, the Chesapeake Bay program did start off as a cooperative. There was no federal law saying you had to do something for the Chesapeake Bay. Um, it's now, there, there now is some federal law involved, but, but that really helped to, 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 do the there was diplomacy i guess i'll use yeah. that word there was diplomacy involved in getting different governors and people to, to go along with it and that stayed with me for most you know and continues to stay with me i love that uh theme and it's definitely something that resonates here on the american shoreline podcast network where we really try to bring all of the different uh kind of siloed groups of the american shoreline together to listen to one another and learn from each other and uh, hopefully find opportunities to work with each other for a thriving uh, for thriving shorelines in the future. Uh, but I, I, I also would love for you while we're talking about this this period in your career where you're really working with these different groups around the Chesapeake uh, Bay. Um, what was what was the popular conception particularly around, you know, in Maryland, around of the Bay system. We have covered on this network uh, quite a bit about the education programming that exists today, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. And so much of this work is about getting school kids out on the water and um, bringing people out to really experience the resource in a way that, uh, you know, did was not happening at... Motivates them. Right, Peter just said motivates them. Um, was that did that exist when you were there? Uh, were 
were people out on the water and were people aware of what the bay system was? How, how did people conceptualize the Chesapeake Bay then? Well, I think there were a number of things that really brought it to the public's mind. And um, uh, one was um, the, the education and the, and the publicity about some of the, some of the issues. But, but, but the other ones were the collapse of some of the ecosystem, the, the striped bass, uh, or they're called rockfish in the Chesapeake Bay, um, the blue crab. Uh, again, uh, Baltimore is often called crab town. You know, uh, right. you know, the last thing you want somebody in Baltimore to do to have to eat a blue crab from the Gulf of Mexico. So, um, they, and, they and, and they sneak them in, don't they? They don't label them all, and they do. They bring them up from Louisiana, and it pisses those people off up there. They look the same. So, um, so the uh, these things started to happen, and you know, you used to be able to get a bushel of crab for you know twenty bucks or something. Now they're you know a hundred bucks or something. And so this this did get people's attention, and but there was an inherent. Um, DNA in, in Marylanders that the bay was what def, was one of the things that defined uh, Maryland and you know the Maryland watermen and the, that whole uh, nostalgia and uh, and heritage there uh, the skipjacks gracefully floating along uh, and then yeah. you know the and then the collapse of the oyster uh, so all these things led to not only were people hearing about the technical sides of the pollution, but they were also now seeing the impact on the fisheries that they relied on or that were part of the heritage of why they were living, mm. uh, you know, in, in Maryland. And so um, this uh, really created a real upswing of, of popular d demand. I mean, you could not run for governor in Maryland without a clear picture of what you're going to continue to do or we're going to do about the Chesapeake Bay. Mm, power of the people. It matters. Uh, and you're also describing a situation where the reality of the situation overcomes somewhat of the ideological resistance or the uh, paralyzation of the political system to take on tough, multi-jurisdictional, multi-economic sector kind of problems like the Chesapeake. Uh, and when we look around the world today, uh, we start to think about one of the other ways the earth is speaking to us and the reality that's coming to bear into the forefront, and that is on climate change. And this is the focus of your current work and your work extending back in as a deputy administrator of EPA and your long career at EPA, but also in your current work at the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. Can you introduce our audience to the center and what it is you guys are trying to do? Sure. Um, the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions has been around for 20 years. Um, before we were called the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, it was the Pew Center for Climate Change. Oh, heard of that. And, and the Pew Charitable Trust was the major funder for it back in the late 90s when it started. And it was one of the few um, NGOs or non-governmental organization uh, at the time that was really focusing almost exclusively on climate change. And then equally important, it was focusing on how to motivate the business community to take action or to support mm. policy for taking action. 
And there was no one else doing that back in the 90s. There are a lot of people doing it now. And the Pew Charitable Trust uh, left from, from, to go do other things after they set it up. And so one of the things I've been doing since I've been there is, is continuing to cultivate uh, you know, both the support and, and the expertise at the center to keep going forward. But we still, at our core, um, are uh, nonpartisan, and we're, so we can maintain uh, good relationships on all in all the political uh, spectrums that, that that exist here in Washington and in state capitals, and and also uh, work strongly with a very diverse group of businesses to get them more and more forward leaning in the work that they do on climate change, and that that has changed through the years, and it continues to uh, change. Well, it, to the to the better. I think that I would agree that if there's an issue that's going to require the high level of skill necessary to collaborate across party lines, across economic interests and stakeholder groups, climate change is going to require that level of skill. Uh, it's what you've been uh, working toward, I think, and professionally it appears. Uh, when you, when we talk about the coast, uh, Bob, when we're interviewing people, on a variety of issues, uh, climate change sneaks into the conversation all the time. Whether we're talking about fisheries, where fish are, what's happening in the Maine lobster fishery, whether we're talking about acidification issues, or property, or real estate, and sea level rise, and insurance, and tourism. Tourism. I mean, the the climate change issue is all over the coast. It looks to us, and when you're at the center. Um, how do you integrate in or how does that factor into what policies you guys are trying to tackle and what is it that you're trying to accomplish there? So that's two questions. I'm sorry. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, sorry. Let me say, there, I, I gave you the broad outline saying that we're, we, we try to maintain a credible um, uh, reputation with all the different parties. We're not, we're, we don't use, uh, you know, rhetoric. That, that would turn one part off or the other part off, sometimes just the words you use mm -hmm. in these modern times of polarization can, can really make people feel different about what you're about to tell them. And so we're very careful on how we talk about these things, but we talk about them straight up and without any uh, you know uh, extrapolation into the realm of how bad it might be if we don't really know or how unimportant it is if of course that's not the true case so so we still work very hard to maintain that and 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 in order to to get the confidence of, of very diverse businesses including oil and gas industry folks in order to maintain their confidence we we have to speak with a credible voice that is uh that is modulated enough so that we're not scaring people away and so the we, we do a lot of that. And one of our main objectives is to obviously get policies in place and, and businesses working on reducing their greenhouse gas emissions or the greenhouse gas emissions from the products they sell, like cars. Right. Um, uh, the other thing we do work on, um, and because the businesses are also very interested in this, as well as the local and state and that, to a certain extent, the national government, but the national government is in a different place these days. Um, we um, we work on on resilience and adaptation, right. and this is where there's an intersection between minimizing the impact of 
of climate change by taking action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and then extending that globally. And we were very involved with the Paris Agreement uh, five years ago. Mm -hmm. And we continue to be involved internationally on the implementation mechanisms of that agreement. Um, obviously with a lot of other countries. Uh, yeah. so, um, but but that, that interface of, of the impact on the oceans um, and, and other parts of the hydrologic cycle is, is profound. And we already are experiencing it. It's one of those things that uh, all you have to do is see what's going on in Michigan this week. Right. And, and you can see uh, the fact that we're getting more intense rain uh, sea level is beginning to rise. The storms that affect the coast are going to are gradually getting more powerful, and this is what you would expect if you if you heat up the gases attached to the Earth by gravity, which we call the atmosphere. If you heat that up, it gets more active, right. and so um, that's what we're doing. And uh, we can we can reduce how 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 bad this is going to be. Um, but we're already feeling the impacts. And so coastal communities are, are some of the more vulnerable communities. And we do work with those coastal communities and with, and with businesses on that. And we, we had a workshop earlier this week uh, on, on, on climate resilience. What is the, let's talk about the reception of this outreach and this cross-political uh, you know, agenda that you have is you've got to be able to talk to people. You change. We will talk about it in terms that will, will not trigger any sort of ridiculous re- result. But you're you're really trying to do it. How receptive is the business community, coastal communities, or other communities around the U.S. or around the world to the message that you're trying to bring? Has that changed since your ten- tenure started in 2014 at the center? You know that's six years. It's not the longest time period in the world, obviously. No. But but yes, I think I think I think demonstrably people have become more receptive to the fact that that something has to be done. And you know, public perception of this has gone up and down a little bit. You can look at a number of different polls that go through time, but it's consistently nudging up. And, and it's consistently nudging up in, in you know, people who self-identify as, as whatever party they're self-identifying in. Uh, they all are nudging up. And part of this is because we're seeing more of the impacts. But part of it is, and I think this is important, people have to, people and, and companies and political entities, they have to have a sense that there's a solution. Um, that it, and that that solution isn't just some, some uh, you know, uh, dra- dramatic uh, event, but that solution is something that we can actually do. I like to say we need to give people a sense that they can see themselves in the future with that solution. And, and, and that a company, if we're working with a company, we say, you know, you can continue to be in business in that future if you can take these steps or if you can help us support these policies that will help move us forward. So there's the, the idea of, of, convinc- of telling people and showing people, you know, through our analysis that there are solutions and that those solutions can result uh, in, 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 and that they can, that they can participate in those solutions 
uh, is an important part of how how we're going to get through this. Man, that was, uh, yeah, that was I good. love to hear that. Got to have hope. We've been, Peter and I have been uh, thinking so much on this subject. And yeah, you need to have hope. But just the process of visioning and right. going through, uh, we, we did a podcast with Nardia High, uh, who on, on scenario planning for climate change. And, yeah. and it's, it, she works with corporations. And yep. basically what she does is just help them think through it. Um, and in, in, in so doing, you, be, you become less fearful. You're no longer burying, you know, one's head in the sand. You are, uh, you're confronting the reality in a way that is actually quite empowering and exciting. And, and there, there is reason to be optimistic. Yep. Um, yep. I, I mean, I definitely believe. Go ahead, Bob. Yeah, I was going to say that part of part of what we really try to achieve there is whether we're working with a city or a state or some federal agency, but 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 most importantly, large, major corporations, Fortune 500 companies. If we can get them to see that future, and that they can play an important role in that future, and we work it back from the middle of the century to today, and we say in order for them to see that future or to, to achieve that future, they need some policy in place today. All of a sudden I've converted somebody from, I don't know what we're gonna do, I don't wanna deal with this, to I can see how I can deal with this and I can see if this policy was in place that it will help me do that. And, and that is, uh, that is uh, what, we, uh, what we are working on. In the meantime, we have to recognize there are going to be some impacts, there are already impacts, and we do have to work on how do we deal with, with adapting uh, to those impacts. Yeah, the other thing you said, Bob, that I mean, I, we've also talked about this on the program, but my, my feeling is that we are in the post. I don't have any polling data, but we talk to a lot of people and we follow Coastal News maniacally. And I'll tell you, I think we are uh, culturally, at least uh, my sense is that we are in a post-denial period. Yes. And um, that that is a relatively recent thing that I think you could say is maybe we've just kind of started to turn that quarter, corner in the past couple years. Um, and I think one of the reasons why our major, uh, this kind of sum total of major events, which would include big hurricane, Superstorm Sandy comes to mind, but also uh, the fires out in California come to mind. I know that that touched uh, my family and, in particular. And Australia, the uh, same thing. You same know, they're, thing. They're, they're happening. But they, absolutely. And, but one event um, that I do want to, that I, I think is, is similar and I want to uh, uh, get your reflections on here 10 years later is the BP uh Horizon oil spill. Uh, I believe it is the largest oil spill. Peter, is that right? In America, well, he'll know, but I believe so. Yes. yes. <laughs> Bob. Now, I don't, Bob I, I don't have a little. The I don't have a little chart here of all the oil spills, but it, let's just say it was a really big one. <laughs> it was a really big one. <laughs> Calculated the fine. What, what was it like to be in the hot seat at EPA when that was going on? It was interesting. Uh, tons of stories about all of that, but um, you know the when there's an oil spill or a chemical spill in the United States, there's a, there's a plan, not for that individual spill, for a, there's a mobilization plan called the National Contingency Plan. 
And when it's a water-oriented one, it's the, the United States Coast Guard yeah. and EPA are the co-chairs of that, of that plan. And if it's inland waters, EPA is the lead. And if it's off, you know, coastal and offshore, uh, the the cor- the um, the uh, National Guard. I'm sorry. The Coast Guard. The Coast Guard is is uh, in charge. And so, um, and I'm gonna, this is this is a this is a true story. What I'm going to say right here: that the day before that rig, I mean, everybody knew it was on fire. It was on fire for two or three days before it sank. Um, but when it was on fire, um, the, the the commandant of the Coast Guard at the time, Thad Allen, called me on the phone and said, you know, he wanted to activate the national contingency plan. And I said, well, you know, I'm always in favor of being ready. And, you know, what 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 are you thinking on this, Thad? And, and he says, well, you know, there's a 9,000 gallon uh, diesel fuel tank on that rig, and I'm worried it's going <laughs> to leak. Ooh. If only that was it. <laughs> if only that was it. So, uh, yeah, so, yeah. So the day before it sank, the the whole rig sank, the Coast Guard and EPA activated the National Contingency Plan and got everybody all mobilized. That's great. That that, that lights up all the emergency response uh, centers f- in every federal agency, and we did that twenty four hours in advance because we were worried about a nine thousand gallon yeah. diesel fuel tank. I'll take it. And, good but, luck. You know, obviously, uh, you know, it gave us a little bit of a head start. But yeah. boy, that, that figuring out that um, how to solve that problem was a yeah was an amazing. Uh, in in a way, it was uplifting how how that happened. In another way, it was uh, you know obviously very discouraging that it hadn't been prepared for before. Right. It's it. I don't know what the lessons are to draw when you look at the look at that event. Uh, it looked like there was a lot of financial pr- pressure on uh, on on Transocean, the uh, operator of the rig itself. They were trying to get to well completion. They didn't cement the well properly at the last bit. It blows out uh, in what about five thousand feet of water. Uh, the rate of uh, spewing oil—I don't know if it, had, it, no, it was it was a mile, almost a mile down. Yeah, five. Yeah, That's- five thousand. Yeah. And how many, it was a big spill. The thing yeah. was pumping out a lot of oil. Um, it was yes. heartbreaking to watch for citizens. I really wonder, you know, being the assistant, this is you're the assistant administrator of the oh, agency at this deputy. stage. Deputy administrator, I'm sorry. Uh, the number two. Um, yeah, that's it. It's, uh, it's, it's a huge event. It's heartbreaking to watch. It's being watched all around the world. And you guys are chairing the National Contingency Plan response with the Coast Guard. Uh, did you sleep? Tell us about those that experience for you and your team. I, sp- I spent quite a bit of time in Louisiana. Um, you know, it was a daily, it was a, a every waking moment virtually uh, uh, that we were involved with. I mean, obviously there are other things going on at EPA that had to be tended to, but virtually for three three months or whatever the time was that that went on, that that was our main thing every morning. We would have to make decisions. We would all be on the phone. What are we going to do today? What's going to happen? You know, the Coast Guard was in the lead. They were the ones that were moving things around out out on the out on the water. Uh, and then there was a separate process underway to figure out how to deal with what was down there. We, there were many things. I mean, you could read about this in the many many reports that have been written on it, and wh- whether people were prepared. I wasn't focusing on 
why it happened or how it happened. I was just focusing on keeping the oil off the shore. Right. You guys would appreciate this. So, I mean, what we were trying to do is keeping uh, the this uh, crude oil from reaching coastal sen- sensitive coastal ecosystems like the the the, the coastal w- wetlands and marshlands of Louisiana, which are you know the the spawning grounds and breeding grounds for millions of birds and and all kinds of aquatic life um and also the the beaches which are all associated with tourism and and everything else i and i believe that we did a pretty good job of that but we made decisions that people didn't agree with i mean we used a lot of dispersant to break it up into smaller pieces so that it didn't uh, get there um uh, you know, all these decisions that we had to make, we didn't have any time to, to contemplate this through some formal pro. I mean, we did some processing of it. We gathered groups of scientists together, but you know, we, when the, when the oil started to move in certain directions, we would, we would attack it, yeah. um, you know, with skimmers as well as with uh, dispersants. And, you know, there was a lot of, you know, rumor mongering that was going on at the at the time that all that's happening. I mean, it's like it's in it's like you're engaging in an ongoing event. But one of the things that was most uplifting about the whole thing, not just that daily, every morning, you know, we would check, we would check. You know, every, what people don't realize, we every morning we would get reports on on uh, on aquatic impacts and and on what was happening in the water column and and uh, you know so we could try to make some kind of informed decision the, the national oceanic and atmospheric administration NOAA was involved with some of those we, and we had these daily calls but while that was going on engineers from all over the world had gathered in texas to try to come up with a solution for that um that leak and we tried a whole bunch of things in a very cautious way most of which did not work um but what ultimately uh, was done is a design of a new, yeah. uh, a new blowout uh, control device that probably was about five or six stories tall. It was a huge machine, and it was designed and tested. It was designed, tested, and built, built and tested, and then it was deployed a mile down with robots and successfully implemented on the first try. Wow. That is but, to be but it took it took you know two two and a half three months to to get to that point uh, after trying other things and and to me and now those things are are available so if this yeah. if anything like this ever happened again you know it would probably be a couple of day event as opposed to a couple of month event so that that was yeah. that was like a an uplifting thing but you know the fact that it happened and and all the factors that went into that you know uh, i i just you know i hope that we maintain the integrity of the of the of the um yeah you know enforcement of rules to keep those things from happening we don't want them to happen again and and it, it's a mix i mean the accomplishment to control a well at that depth had never been done in the history of the world. It was accomplished. It did take some months. Uh, there was a lot of oil. There is another outfall of this event that has been an important driver in environmental restoration and, uh, and enhancement on the Gulf of Mexico. And that Positive is the, resto- the, the Restore Act and the federal funding that EPA yep. and Congress put together, allocated to the states, and really put... And look, BP pays a boatload of money into this system, as does Transocean and other responsible parties. But billions, uh, it's r- billions, and and 
I got to say, in watching that happen, uh, the Centers for Excellence, the university systems that have been funded for research on the coast, I, as, a, as a former chief of operating officer for the National Audubon Society and a big time birder, I got to think that some of the things happening down there on the Louisiana coast in response to the spill from Restore with Restore Friends has got to be heartening for you. Yes, it is. It is. I mean, these are the things that are often the silver linings to these horrific events. Um, but the, uh, you know, the coordination of that, the, the, the work on that, obviously much more money and much more uh, effort needs to be put into coastal uh, restoration in Louisiana. It's a, it's a major coastal wetland system that um, I think uh, most, uh, you know, it's one of the most productive nurseries uh, that we have. And so there's still more work that needs to be done there, obviously, to keep that place restored. But, but yes, this is a huge boost to our knowledge base and to our understanding, um, and uh, you know, and and everything that, that we know about how to work, uh, we're, we're going to learn more uh, going forward with some of the research that's being done, and uh, and hopefully that'll help inform more policy to continue some of the restoration. There's not enough money in this whole deal to do right. the, all the restoration that needs to be done, but yes. um, but certainly. Uh, more needs to be done. And, and with the case of the Gulf of Mexico, which has similar issues, you know, at, at that local coastal level than the che- as the Chesapeake Bay with the nutrients coming down the Mississippi River from the, yes. from the, from the cities and the, and the agricultural activities uh, up on the, up the Mississippi. And so how to, it's, it's like, it's like the Chesapeake Bay on steroids, you know, yeah. it's this huge system. Yeah. And, um, and better understanding of that is also, uh, I think, going to come out of some of this. But we really need to have that upper watershed is involved as as the coastal areas as well. You bet, all the way to Minnesota. Uh, <laughs> the Bob, it's the, the the fact of the matter is, and I think in coastal restoration and enhancement regulation, the work of EPA and all the state environmental agencies down to the local is a conversation it is a dialogue that goes on between the american people what we want and expect the environment to give to us and how we want to use the environment this dialogue is continuing and will never end and i i know we're getting close to the end of the time but i have to if you if you can spare a few more minutes i would like to i'd really like to ask you about the initiative that president obama and and the administration at epa put in place the clean power program uh, which was uh, really about this ener- the energy sector and its relationship on climate. Such an important issue. Uh, and I just want to say, throwing in the idea that we're seeing wind power off the northeast coast of America starting to take shape. Uh, tell us about the Clean Power Program and what's, what's, what do we still have of it these days? And how do we go forward from here on that issue? I have to take a deep breath. Um, look, uh, we worked on that clean power plan seven years ago, seven, I think it was seven years ago when we put the proposal together and then it, I, I left after the, to, to take this job after that proposal was out. And then it was another year or so when, before the final version went out and then, uh, um, things started to happen that are happening today. So it never really was implemented. Um, okay. And uh, I think that's important to, to know. However, it, it wasn't implemented in, in, from a legal perspective. 
but it, I believe it was more than implemented from a reality and psychological perspective. And it, and it sort of plays out this way. That clean power plan, when we put it together seven years ago, we had hoped to get a 30%, you know, roughly a 30% reduction in greenhouse gases from the power sector, the electricity generating sector in the American uh, economy. And uh, today, 10 years before 19, I mean, before 2030, did I say 1930? I meant 2030. Yeah, 2030, um, yeah tw- um, tw- 10 years before that, the power sector is almost at 25 to 26% below what they were going to, you know, uh, from 2005, which was the, the base, base year we were starting with. And so what's happened is when we put that plan together, it sent a lot of signals to the power industry, which was looking at what is their annual, what, what do they have in their annual capital program? What, what should they be doing? You know, when are they going to renovate this particular coal plant? Or when are they going to build new generation over here? And they, the, the utility planners all started to change their mindset on what, what should they be planning for the future. Remember I was talking earlier about can they see their future with a different set of yeah. realities uh, to, to guide them. And what the power sector started to do when they looked at the clean power plan and it, is that this is doable. In fact, this is more than doable. We can do this. And make more and, money, maybe. Cheaper energy. Yeah. You know, people's electric rates in the United States have not gone up in the last 10 years. I mean, they've gone up, but less than the rate of inflation. So this, what's happening is... Hmm. Um, power, uh, natural gas turbines, which are much cleaner than coal plants, uh, renewable energy, all of these things have been being implemented. And, and what you have is a downward trajectory in the greenhouse gases from the power sector. And of course, this is an essential element of climate strategy, because if you, if you want to have electric cars, or you want to make all buildings electric, or find ways to use electric arc furnaces to make aluminum and, and steel and all these other things, the electricity has to be carbon free. So that's like like a, the linchpin to get that power sector down. So what we see is that's what's happening. And Good and news. it's happening uh, it's happening because of all these other factors. And it's happening because I I believe when when EPA worked on that plan uh, seven, eight years ago, um, it started to send a different kind of signal that eventually this is what they're going to have to do. And, and the power sector has really embraced this um, in ways that I think are remarkable. You have, I'm going to say, I, I'm, this is not a, a prove, not a known fact, uh, you know, with data, because I don't have it in front of me, but I'm going to say from, an, from a center of mass perspective, probably we're getting to the point where over 50% of the electricity made in the United States is made by a company that's committed to be net zero by 2050. Wow. It may even be a bigger number. And that the, we're down into the 20s already in terms of the percent reduction from 2005. And I'm going to guess that the current trajectory will get them all close to 40 percent uh, by 2030. So um, this die has been cast. And now it's just a time of whether we can have policy in place to help move it along faster. And, uh, and then, you know, we are building natural gas turbines now to replace coal plants. Yep. Uh, in companionship with uh, renewable energy like wind and solar. But in the 2030s and the 2040s, we're going to have to do something about those natural gas turbines as well, right. either switch them out or put carbon capture control devices on them. 
Um, but but we but most companies can see that path. They can see that path in the next thirty years, and and they're they're now on that path. And so what we need from policy now is how to put how to help them on that path, clear the underbrush that may be in the way, or if you want to use a water version, put some wind in their sails. That's right, a little bit of wind so that, power. So they, don't, so they don't have to tack as often. Right. I like so. that, I like that. A, Bob, a um, straight course with fair wind. That's right, good, you down, got it. good downwind tacked. Uh, Bob, I, we could do this all day, but I do I want to hit one other topic. In the current administration, one of the hallmarks that I've seen come out of this administration, rather surprisingly, the result of work within Congress, and I think EPA must have been involved, and Trump signed, uh, President Trump signed the legislation, is the IRS 45Q carbon sequestration tax yeah. credit. Uh, yeah. It seems it, like the most innovative step at, on a policy level I've seen on climate change. Can you talk about that provision or others that you're encouraged yeah. by? Well, certainly that was an important one, because no matter how you look at the future, we're going to need to use carbon capture. If you look at a at a steel mill or at a cement plant, even if they were running on 100 percent, you know, renewable energy, the processes themselves produce greenhouse gases. If you're and so you have to capture that carbon and you have to be able to do something with it. So the, 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 it's not so much like this is a way to preserve all our coal plants, although some might benefit from this. Certainly around the world, there will be coal plants mm -hmm. and there will be natural gas turbines in 2050. We need to be doing something with that carbon. There probably won't be that many in the United States, but, but, the, but we'll need it for these other industrial sources as well. And so this is a technology that we can't escape needing by the middle of the century. And, and um, this was a bold uh, step that was had bipartisan support. Yeah. Um, and it's really important that these things have bipartisan support so that they have durability. You know, the Clean Air Act enacted in 1990 by a huge, which incidentally is 30 years old now, huge bipartisan support. Yeah. And yes, there's been arguments over it. There's been lawsuits over it. We continue to fight about it. But basically, no one has ever changed the law. No. The law is, is the 1990 amendments of the Clean Air Act have been implemented. They're being implemented. They've had massive reductions in greenhouse, in, not in greenhouse gases, in the traditional pollutants that we have in the United States. Right. And this has been, uh, that's because it ha had durability. Tremendous um, success there. What did you call that thing, Peter? A fugitive, a fugitive emission, fugitive dust emissions. That's that's it's way too deep. Yeah, look, we're not we're not talking <laughs> about that, Bob. We're just having a fun name, a fun it's little yeah, uh, term. Right. Oh, but but that's a real thing. It is. It is. Yeah. It it's is. a real it thing. It's a PM10. Uh, it's a small. Got to round them up. Yeah. Got to round up the fugitives. Uh, well, Bob, it's it it. Thank you for the time, and we 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 we'll, would be respectful and and let you go. But before we do, uh, last words. What would you like our listeners around the country to know about where we stand in our relationship with the natural world and the environment these days? Going into Memorial Day. Going into Memorial. Going into Memorial Day. Well, look, you know, uh, I think people need to recognize the the world is very complicated. When when I was born. There were 2.8 billion people on Earth, and they were, you know, however many, however many cars they had, however many, uh, you know, uh, barbecues they had or cook stoves that they had. 
uh, 2.8 billion. Today it is seven, seven and a half billion. This happened in my lifetime. Right. And I'm old, but I'm not that old. No, so, um, you know, the, the impact of, of, of bringing all those people, as many as we can, up to a standard of living that we, or you know, approaches anything near what we, what we um, have in the United States and other parts of the developed world, is an important and socially responsible thing for us to do. If we're going to do that, we're going to have we're going to have to manage the environmental impacts of that. Otherwise, it becomes self-defeating. And so, I think what we're learning slowly but surely, and it's going to take fits and starts. There'll probably be some more catastrophes. You know, God forbid. But but the bottom line is, if we want to support uh, you know these larger uh, amounts of people, and we want these people to have a decent standard of living yeah. um, and health. Um, we're going to have to tackle these problems simultaneously. People are going to need energy yep. to move into the 21st century. That energy has to be clean. And I think this is a huge economic opportunity. Uh, this is not an economic drain. This is a huge economic opportunity. That is, we can't afford to let the United States miss out on right. this huge economic opportunity by putting our heads in the sand and thinking somehow this is going to go away. And so I'll leave you guys with that thought on That's Memorial great. Day. We have the opportunity to lead the world on this, and we need to get to it. Well, Memorial Day is a great ending, and Memorial Day is a Woo! recognition of the sacrifice and the commitment to the best of the country. Uh, we are being called, the innovators in America are being called to the table to come and help solve this problem, and I know we can do it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Bob Perchisepi. He is the president of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions and former deputy administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, acting administrator of the agency as well. He was the assistant administrator of both the water division and the air division, one of the true coastal professionals and environmental professionals we've ever had on the show. Bob, thank you for sharing your insights with us on the state of the world. My pleasure. Singing